Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that still to this day has recurring dreams. They're so good. Of visiting the Delia's outlet in Reading, Pennsylvania. Seriously, I think it's a treat that my brain gives me when I've been having a particularly hard day. It turns out, you know, some people, their happy place is the beach or maybe swimming with dolphins or looking at whales. Why am I going aquatic here? I have no idea. But anyway, it turns out my secret happy place is the Delia's outlet. <laughs> it says a lot about me, I'm sure. I'm your host, Amanda, and apparently I think a lot about Delia's and the ocean, and this is episode 147. My friend Jess, who is so rad, is back to discuss more catalogs. We'll cover the story of Lillian Vernon. It's more than just embroidery. We'll dig into the catalogs of our tween and teen years. There's Delia's and Alloy, Moxie Girl, Gofranzoli, so many more. Jess will tell us the story of the time she visited the Delia's offices, which I am so jealous of. And because hindsight is always 2020, right? That's that's how it goes. We'll lay out where these catalogs went wrong while they also succeeded in like framing out this idea of brand and lifestyle for millennials and millennial focused brands in the 21st century. Like they actually, even though most of these catalogs are no longer with us, uh, they really... They really set up so many brands of this century. We're going to talk all about that. But before we jump into that, let's listen to some audio essays from small business owners in our community. Today, we're going to meet Natalie of Yellow Clover Vintage and Mariana of Luneta Creations. Let's give them a listen. Hi, my name is Natalie, and I'm the owner of Yellow Clover Vintage, an Instagram-based vintage kids clothing shop. You can find us at Yellow Clover Vintage on Instagram. It all started because I couldn't stop buying kids' clothes. My husband and I had three sons through adoption, and we were waiting for our fourth, a girl. I had seen how our sons destroyed most of their clothes, like knees torn open, pen drawings on the thighs, cut sleeves when they wanted a tank top, so I'd stopped buying new kids' clothes. The adoption wait can be long, and thrifting became my form of nesting while we waited to welcome our daughter. There was, and still is, something so therapeutic about flipping through racks and wandering aisles. It's the perfect introvert's pastime, which is what I am. I could feel the quality difference in a lot of the clothing. Most of the best stuff was vintage. Besides the quality, the colors, patterns, and quirky designs were my thing. I'm just not a neutrals kind of person. I started accumulating a little stash for our daughter, but I could not pass up a good piece of kids' vintage clothing. I started selling them on Facebook and found a little community of other moms buying and selling vintage kids' clothes. A friend encouraged me to make an Instagram shop, so I did. As soon as I did, I realized that there were parents all over the U.S. and even in other countries who wanted to buy the things I was finding. Soon, I expanded to Shopify, too. I found so many other parents who like vintage kids' clothes for reasons that I do. 
The quality is higher than the fast fashion clothes being made today. The details are just a lot cuter too, like shirts with huge graphics and rompers with little moving parts. Uh, one of my favorites is a vintage ant farm t-shirt with a clear vinyl piece sewn on the front with little plastic ants inside. It feels really good to know we're playing our small part in eliminating some of the waste that comes from kids' clothes. Kids grow so quickly, and they ruin so much. There was a huge nostalgia factor, too. I had a great childhood, and it's been fun to relive some of it through finding clothes I know my brothers and I wore, or a Beauty and the Beast t-shirt, because I did believe I was the most like Belle when I was younger. As a parent, my small business is a part of my self-care and sanity, too. It has been such a good creative outlet for me. I've always had an interest in design, so getting to show people these awesome colors and prints with a nice photo is fun for me. Of course, I like being able to contribute an income to our family, too. It's nice to think I paid for this trip or I paid for these music lessons for my kids. I love the relationships I've formed with other parents. It makes me so happy to see kids wearing clothing I found, washed, and restored for their birthdays or holidays. The relationships with my customers have grown in our commonality as parents. We talk about school and sleep and Bluey and the things that matter most to us. So what started as a hobby to clothe my own kids has turned into clothing kids in multiple states and countries. It brings me a lot of joy, and I know it brings other parents joy too. So again, my name is Natalie, and my shop is Yellow Clover Vintage. You can find us on Instagram at Yellow Clover Vintage. Hi, Amanda and fellow Clothes Horse listeners. My name is Mariana and I'm obsessed with Clothes Horse. It's basically the only podcast I listen to. Uh, I apologize in advance if my if anything that I pronounce is not correct because <laughs> I'm Brazilian, so English is not my first language. But I hope you can understand me. Uh, I'm calling in regards to Amanda's prompt about story and feelings about owning a small business. I'm the owner of a reworked vintage jewelry brand called Bonita Creations. Uh, I basically source vintage beaded necklaces, take them apart, and then I remake them into new original designs. And I've had the brand for a bit over two years. It started as a side hustle during lockdown. And what prompted it was actually that a friend of mine sent me a picture of a bottle of wine that had my nickname on it. Incursive and the font reminded me of the business cards I had my dad print out for me when I was eight and owned my first jewelry business. <laughs> uh, this would have been in the year 2000, so it was mostly seed necklaces and elastic bracelets that I would force my classmates to buy for me during recess. Uh, well, okay, maybe not force, but I would ask them very nicely. And I don't know when the when the wine when the wine label rem reminded me of that. I immediately started thinking about starting a jewelry brand again, and I was so excited I couldn't even sleep <laughs> thinking about what I would make and my branding. And as I love vintage, and I, I knew I know it was, it's the best for the environment, I decided to go through this route of sourcing vintage necklaces and take them taking them apart for materials. And sometimes I'm lucky to find vintage net stock beads as well. Uh, when I started Luneta, I had been working at Amazon for about six years. I was hired as an intern there back in 2014 while I was still in uni in Brazil. I was majoring in economics, uh, even though none of the jobs I've had at Amazon <laughs> had anything to do with that. <laughs> they transferred me to their UK office back in 2017, so I've actually been living in London since then. Uh, I don't want to go too deep into it, but even though I've, I, I feel lucky 
that I got to keep my, my day job at Amazon during COVID. During my whole time there, which was almost eight years, I never felt like I could be myself. So when I started Luneta in 2020, I really felt like it was the first time that I could just be myself and not not have to pretend like to be like a corporate persona. Um, it was so freeing. <laughs> then in July 2021, I actually changed teams at Amazon because I was hoping that maybe it would make things better. But the team I moved to was really crazy in terms of work-life balance. Uh, and then I, imag- I eventually I burned out and decided to quit December to quit Amazon in December last year. And I wish I could say that I quit my job because Luneta was so successful that I just could. But I'm actually just lucky that I have enough money saved, at least for for now, and being able to make do when my sales aren't enough to pay to make my rent and bills. And even though I make less money than I did while I was in corporate, I'm really passionate about what I'm doing with Luneta. And to be honest, the thought of having to go back to the corporate world gives me a huge amount of anxiety. So I'm doing my best to make Luneta work out, including taking some lessons from your small business big picture course. (laughs) Uh, In terms of lessons learned, the first thing that I did not think about uh, before I started Luneta is that how how lonely it is to have your own business when you do everything yourself. I I never thought I would miss speaking to people because I don't know, having meetings was like the worst part of my day, but I actually do. Uh, so I think it's really important to find a community that you can talk about your business and, you know, brainstorm, etc. Uh, I also learned that you sometimes you just have to push through the embarrassment <laughs> to start your own business. When I started Luneta, I kept thinking, like, why would anyone buy anything from me? I majored in economics. I've never had a creative job. Who am I to try and sell things? Uh, but with time, I've been trying to feel more entitled to making a living based on my values because this is... Just what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to become a millionaire or, you know, grow Luneta indefinitely. Uh, I just want to be able to pay my bills and maybe go traveling sometimes. <laughs> uh, the third thing that I'm still trying to get my head around is how to make a, success, a sustainable business more scalable. Uh, because I use vintage beads, I can only make one or two of my designs most of the time. So not only are the beads, vintage beads more expensive, compared to contemporary beads, but also the process of finding them and then cleaning them and then taking them apart is a lot more time consuming. So yeah, I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> That's it for me. I'm looking forward to looking to listening to all your old episodes. At the moment, I am at Capitalism Month in 2021, which has been super interesting. Uh, I'm Mariana from lunettacreations.com or at lunettacreations on Instagram. That's L-U-N-E-T-A, creations. Have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you to both Natalie and Mariana for taking the time to share their stories with us. I loved listening to them. And now I want the adult version of that ant farm shirt that Natalie was describing. Doesn't it sound so good? I will be sharing Natalie and Mariana's websites and Instagram profiles in the show notes. So please go give them a follow. Uh, You know, Mariana touched on something that I want to talk about here, and it's something that I've actually been having a lot of conversations about recently, and that's the challenge of getting customers to be okay with paying a fair price for the items she offers. She said, quote, why would anyone buy anything from me? We're going to come back to that multiple times in this conversation because this is something we have been talking about a lot 
in this round of the small business classes I teach with Courtney of Sonic Wave Vintage. That is small biz, big pick, which Mariana has taken a few classes this term. And actually, Natalie is in, is in the classes right now. Everyone in this round, and to be honest, probably every small business owner ever struggles with paying themselves a living wage and charging the right prices to make that happen. It is the question I answer most frequently with clients, with friends, and definitely with students in Small Biz Big Pick. I will agree that a lot of customers, or at least people having a bad day on Instagram, will be price resistant at times. Not because they're horrible, selfish people, but because they don't understand. They really don't understand why things should cost more if the people making, selling, shipping, and delivering those items are going to be paid a living wage. As we've talked about many, many times here on Clothes Horse, fast fashion and really the fast fashionization of everything, literally everything you can buy, has really distorted our sense of value and price. You and I both know that a tank top should cost more than $1.90. But we know that because we have the knowledge, right? We understand the big picture. We have seen the data. We've heard the stories. The average customer probably doesn't have that knowledge. And as much as it feels like a burden, an unfair burden for sure, it's kind of on us as small business owners to share that knowledge. I call it, and yes, this is gross, showing how the sausage is made. Show why your beads are special and more expensive. Explain the time required to make something you sell. Most people don't even understand. They don't have, they have no idea how much time is involved in making a necklace or a shirt or pouring candles or all the other things you do. If you're a secondhand seller, emphasize the amount of time you're saving someone by bringing these clean, mended items right to the door. How, how do you share that knowledge? You show it on social media. You tell these stories via the emails you send your customers. You talk about it with other business owners. You talk about it in Instagram Lives. You share it in your stories. You show the work you're doing. Yeah, do we ask Amazon to show us the work? Do we ask Zara how much time it takes to make that dress? No, but unfortunately, this is where we are because these companies have made pricing so disconnected from the actual time, materials, and value of the things they sell that unfortunately it's on us to undo that misconception, that disconnect, By telling the truth, by showing our truth, by detailing the work that goes into the things that we do, and by explaining what it is to pay yourself a living wage and why it matters. No one wants you to not pay yourself a living wage. They just don't see how the pieces connect together. And it's on us to show that. I mean, that's definitely something I'm shouting about every day, I feel like, to anyone who will listen. We all need to do that so more people hear us because only a few people hear me, right? Maybe only a few people hear you. Only a few people hear some other people in your life. But if we are all talking about it, then everybody hears it eventually, right? But 
that's not the end of it, right? Because I think there's something a little bit more insidious involved in why it's so hard to charge the right price, okay? Let's go back to what Mariana said in her audio essay again. Why would anyone buy something for me? I, I can list many reasons why someone should buy something from Mariana. I was looking at her jewelry today and it is beautiful. I want every single piece. Lots of stunning pastel beads and I love knowing that they are vintage. Like it's some of the best jewelry I've seen in a long time and I think it has incredible value. It's definitely worth paying a higher price, right? She's definitely talented. I mean, she's been making jewelry since she was a kid. Like, that's real experience. There is no reason why anyone should hesitate to pay the real value of this jewelry, nor should Mariana hesitate in charging that real, accurate, fair price, right? What this really is, that question, why would anyone buy something for me, is imposter syndrome. And I know this is something that's kind of trendily thrown out there on social media in meme format, but let's just talk about it a little bit more, okay? Because I see it coming up over and over again in the small business world. Wikipedia defines imposter syndrome as a psychological occurrence in which an individual doubts their skills, talents, or accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. Imposter syndrome is often accompanied by anxiety and depression and then even more anxiety. (laughs) And it manifests itself in a lot of behaviors that you might catch yourself doing every day. Like, is making a single mistake the most terrifying thing you can imagine, specifically making it publicly? Do you get kind of stuck in ensuring that everything is perfect, and that's perfect in quotes, before making a move, that's imposter syndrome. Are you afraid that people won't like your Instagram posts or they'll be super critical at the very least? Is this preventing you from posting on your business account or even on your personal account? That's imposter syndrome right there too. And I'll be the first to admit that I have a lot of anxiety every single time I post something on the closed source Instagram every time. I've been doing this for years now. And I kind of like hold my breath and I can feel my heart racing, asking myself, how will this go wrong? The human brain was not built for the steady stream of feedback from strangers that social media gives us. I don't love it. But I have also experienced some of the worst things that social media can bring you. That was like death threats from vegans who found my phone number on the internet. That was because I posted about fake leather being plastic. Uh, People criticizing my body and appearance, really the last thing that I need (laughs) at this point. Um, I've been accused of being a clueless, privileged white woman because of my stance on secondhand shopping. I could go on and on. I have definitely had to take breaks. I've had to turn off comments. I've had to turn off DMs. I've had to skip out on social media for periods of time for sure. But you know what? That doesn't mean that no one wants to see my content on Instagram. It doesn't mean that my content isn't good enough and that I should be ashamed of it or anxious about it. And I would say the same for you if the anxiety that you aren't good enough is holding you back. And and I will say within a lot of the conversations I have, it is the anxiety of not being good enough 
that is preventing people from posting about their business or showing their work or showing the work, how the sausage is made that I was talking about earlier, right? It's the fear of people not thinking it's worth still worthwhile. And right there, that's imposter syndrome. Does the thought of asking for someone for help or advice completely freak you out because you know you'll be unmasking yourself as an incompetent imposter? I want you to know that, yeah, that's imposter syndrome right there. But everyone needs help and advice. Geez, like even like CEOs of companies, not that I'm like, you know, glorifying them here, but like people who make a lot of big decisions, you know, leaders of nations, right? They have advisors, right? Because they need other people. They need advice. They need expertise. They need to just talk about things with other people. Everybody needs help and advice. That is kind of like one of the hardest parts, I think, about small business ownership, which Mariana touched on. Like I even as a podcaster, I don't interact with a lot of other podcasters because, you know, I'm kind of like busy podcasting. And I'm sure a lot of you are like really busy trying to like live your day-to-day life and run your business. But I do think there's something to be said for networking, which I hate that word, but connecting, let's say that instead, building relationships with other small business owners in your community because you can talk about these things and you can share best practices and get advice or even vent about a situation that has you in a quandary. Like maybe it's a really difficult customer or something that was happening on Instagram. Honestly, I used to take all of the really intense feedback, negative feedback I would get on Instagram so personally as like it was my fault that I was the problem. And if I couldn't get it together, then I didn't deserve to be on Instagram, something like that. That's the kind of stuff my brain does all the time. And I started talking to my other friends who, you know, their businesses relied on social media. And wow, like they, they were experiencing the same sort of things. And it was really validating and actually helped me feel like less of an imposter, a mess up by hearing that they, they were facing the same situations. I mean, that doesn't make it great that people are jerks on social media, but it did help me feel like less that the problem was me and my incompetence, right? Once again, everyone needs help and advice. And sometimes it's not, it's just as simple as having a conversation with someone who shares a similar business or life as you. I ask you this, who is the person you admire most in the world? I'll give you a minute. Maybe this person is your role model. Think about it. Think about it. I can assure you that they have asked many people for help, advice, guidance. They've even just vented at them over the years. We all need that. That is what it is to be human. Are you working ridiculous hours trying to work harder than everyone else? Oh, man, this is one I know very well. Really doubling down on hustle culture because you want to prove that you deserve success? Nope, that's not good either. That's imposter syndrome. You do not need to burn yourself out working 24 hours a day, working harder than everyone else to prove that you belong here. You do belong here. You know, are you afraid of applying for markets or offering wholesale because you assume no one will want your stuff? I bet you're totally wrong. Have you asked others their opinion on this, like people you trust who are close to you? I don't think you should look to the opinions of others to feel better about your work, but 
it can be a start to just like putting it in perspective. And I think that often what happens, especially when you're a small business owner, when you're working on your own all the time, right? Like you don't interact with a lot of other peers as much. Um, And then you're on social media where you see the most perfect version of everything everyone's doing, right? You know, it took them 50 tries to get the right photo, but your brain doesn't process it that way. So you're being left alone with your thoughts. You're only seeing the most idealized version of everybody's work out there. You start to get this skewed idea of what is good and what is not. And then, of course, your brain goes to the stuff I'm doing is in the not good category. So I definitely catch myself kind of self-sabotaging myself all the time with imposter syndrome, especially when it comes to this idea of like perfection or everything being better than what I'm doing. I have my own approach that helps me a lot. And take this with a grain of salt because I'm not a therapist at all, but I am someone who has dealt with imposter syndrome my whole life. And I have found that this exercise really helps me put things in perspective. So you might want to try this. I'm betting you have a vision of the perfect version of the thing you are doing. The thing that when compared to what you're doing always makes your thing less good, less worthy of a fair price, less worthy of being in markets, less good, right? This version that is in your mind is millions of miles beyond what you're doing. That's that you've come to accept that as fact, a fact that you repeat to yourself. And so I'll tell you this, it's not a fact, but you repeated it so many times to yourself that it became a fact. It's the version of your work that will always garner a fair price when you feel too afraid to ask for it yourself, right? It will be accepted in every market with like a red carpet rolled out for the seller. It'll get 1 million likes on social media while you're only going to get 15 or whatever it is you're imagining. You have that vision of that in your head. And maybe it's a particular business, a particular product. I don't know. Theoretically, it's something you saw before and it's stuck with you all this time. But our memories play tricks on us, right? And sometimes, frequently, the way we remember something is not what it really was, right? In this kind of case, this like perfect, most ideal version of what you do that you've ever seen is probably a more fantastical version than reality. So, you know, I'll ask myself, like, what is the best version of what I'm doing that someone else is doing? For example, it would be like, what's the best podcast I can think of? Who's making the best Instagram educational content? For Mariana, it would mean finding the best jewelry made of vintage beads. Now go give it a look or listen, like really look at it, really study it. Why is it so much better than what you're doing? Or is it really so much better at all? I think we tend to build up the perfect versions into something larger than life, something completely unachievable that even the original version did not achieve what we've imagined in our minds over time. And all this does is make our work seem worse, less worthy of customers or listeners or appreciators. We're doing ourselves a major disservice by holding on to this idealized version of something that doesn't exist. And I think examining 
comparing, looking at it in real life can really help you get some perspective and realize that actually you're doing a great job. I also think many of us have been conditioned to feel shame and pride, that it's a bad look to be happy with our work. I mean, Dustin and I were talking the other day about how there was a time, you know, in our like late teens, early 20s, where it was shameful to be, quote, trying too hard. So when Dustin would play a show, he would make sure he wasn't like doing too good of a job playing guitar, making things too perfect, you know, because he didn't want people to think he like cared that much. And I definitely remember that with like things I would write and even the way I would get dressed. I would like, it needs to be a little bit off so no one thinks I'm trying too hard or I'm high maintenance. And I think in general, hopefully we're all getting over this, like don't try too hard thing. I hope that that's something that's like left in the 90s and the early aughts. It's like such a gross hipster thing. But I think a lot of us at the same time have been conditioned to feel that shame of being proud of ourselves or being happy with our work. Like we're not, we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to be proud of what we have done, what we're currently doing, what we'll do next. We're always supposed to feel a little bit bad about it. Unfortunately, discouraging people from being happy with their accomplishments just swings the pendulum even harder into imposter syndrome. I see imposter syndrome playing itself out in so many bad ways as we undersell ourselves in many, many different aspects of our lives. Not asking for raises and pay time off at work because we think we're unworthy. Not charging fair prices for the things we sell because we think we are unworthy. Staying stuck in toxic relationships, both romantic, both romantic and platonic, because we think we are unworthy. Depriving ourselves of rest and reward, because guess what? We think we are unworthy. Neglecting our health, because we think we are unworthy of caring for ourselves or being cared for. There's no easy cure for imposter syndrome. And from my experience, it creeps back into my life anytime I'm in a new situation, whether that's a new job, a new project, a new place, a party where I don't even know anyone, you name it. If I'm uncomfortable, my imposter syndrome comes back in full force. Obviously, therapy is the ideal way to work through this, but therapy, at least here in the United States, is a massive luxury that many of us don't get to have. I think talking about your own imposter syndrome with close friends is super helpful. Even asking them to call you out when you're saying or doing something that is clearly the result of imposter syndrome, I think that can be really, really helpful because I do think, and I hope this doesn't sound like too new agey manifesting, that kind of thing. I think when we hear ourselves say something out loud that is very critical of us, our work, uh, that kind of creates this feedback loop where we believe it as reality. It goes back to what I was saying earlier that if you've questioned the quality of your work long enough, you've repeated it to yourself so many times, it becomes a fact. And I think that is a big part of being called on that, being called out when we say that stuff out loud. Uh, Because if someone says, no, you're wrong, it stops that feedback loop and it interrupts its chance to become fact in your brain. 
There are many, many articles, books, videos, et cetera, about this topic. I recommend checking them out, you know, finding the right thing for you. Sometimes we have to expose ourselves to a lot of information before we find we find the truth for ourselves, the thing that works best for us. I also, I cannot recommend this highly enough. I suggest distancing yourself from people who stoke your imposter syndrome by being overly critical of you, who tell you to settle for less because you are not worthy of better, who neg you first before offering a tepid compliment. We've all had people like that in our lives. I have noticed how certain people time and time again exacerbated my sense of imposterism and distancing myself from that has helped me so much. Okay, that's a lot of therapy from someone who is not a therapist. So I guess we will finish this installment of the Close Horse Therapy Corner, <laughs> trademark pending. <laughs> um, so let's let's totally shift gears and let's jump back into my conversation with Jess about catalogs. This is another one where I was like, oh, we'll probably talk about this for one minute. And then I started reading and I couldn't stop. That was Lillian Vernon. Oh, yes. We talked about Lillian Vernon yes. a bit. So, I mean, <laughs> I think of Lillian Vernon as a place you buy things that are embroidered with your name on it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether it's a doll or a robe or, you know, anything. It's just like they put names on things. Mm-hmm. So I started, oh man, I just, this was like the last thing I was reading about last night. And I was like, okay, I need to like go to bed soon. This is get, getting too ridiculous. <laughs> but Lillian Vernon was started by Lillian Menashe in 1951 when she was 24 years old. Oh, go get it. I know. She get was it, Lillian. She was newly married and pregnant and she used $2,000 of her wedding money to start the business which began by placing advertisements in Seventeen magazine for personalized purses and belts. They were like $1.99 for the belt, $2.99 for the purse, and they would have your name embroidered on them. I am so impressed because you were so spot on. I you know. Knew where they came. You knew where the, the origin story, like, just, just from, you know, yeah, it glancing was, at the catalog. Right? It was, was like, yeah, thing. I was like, wow, this is like – the only catalog story that we're telling that you're like, yeah, it all adds up, right? Uh-huh. Um, yes. So this was so wildly successful that her first round of ads generated $32,000 in sales, which is more than $365,000 in today's money. I mean, she turned a major profit. And so, you know, that was her thing, right? Personalized stuff. And At that time, you know, in the early days of Lillian Vernon, it was primarily marketed towards young women, hence the ad in 17. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, you know, they increased the range a little bit to like young married women as too. And it really became like an iconic catalog for women in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Over time, it shifted focus and expanded to sell to older women as its customers grew older, you know, to homemakers, mothers, Definitely grandmas now, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's definitely like grandma vibes. Yes. Yeah, like by the time we were kids, it was our grandmas who had like grown up with this catalog basically. Yeah, well, it sounds like the catalog moved with them. Yes, you know, yes. Through time, yeah. So the Lillian Vernon Corporation was founded in 1965 after she'd been in business for 14 years. 
And it went public in 1987. It was the first company to be founded by a woman to be publicly traded on the American Stock Exchange. What, like, why don't we know that? Like, why didn't I Why know are we already? not celebrating Lillian like Manash dis- all the times? I know. I'm like a little disappointed in myself for not Me too. That. Me too. So then this is when I was like, oh my God, I, I need to go to bed soon. Like, why am I doing this? Well, then I stumbled upon her obituary in the New York Times. I want to say it was from 2015, around that time. Oh, okay. Um, here's what the New York Times had to, had to say. Ms. Vernon had what she called a golden gut for knowing what women wanted, often even before they knew. Her products were as diverse as rescued shards of Ming vases. I have no idea what that means. uh, That she fashioned into pendants and bracelets. And, of course, her signature all-pink lady toolkit, complete with hammers, screwdrivers, wrenches, and sometimes a power drill. Apparently, her worst-selling item ever was a pillow that read, a woman who is looking for a husband has never had one. <laughs> Worst selling item. Um, she sounds like a really like, just, yeah. That's great. So smart though. Scandal, scandalous. Yeah, yeah. So I, I tried so hard to find catalogs from the 60s and 70s and I could not, which bums me out. I'm going to keep looking because I feel like there's probably some really cool stuff in there. Yeah. There's somebody selling one right, on right. eBay some, in the depths of the resale internet market right now. So in the 80s, you know, Lillian decided like here, the focus of Lillian Vernon is going to be this idea that we bring the best gifts of Europe to you in the United States. And so the, that's where they went. Although like, to be okay. honest, I don't feel like it looked much different than when we looked at the Lillian Vernon website last week. No, uh, no. And but yeah, but I can see that maybe a little. I can see. Yeah, I think so too. You know, it's like, it's like lots of steps up from like Spencer's. Oh my catalog. good lord. Yes. But it's like the same idea, but it's like the, you know, the like late, the fancier lady. I don't know. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. And uh, I mean, yeah. even the stuff you, the stuff you and I were seeing in the, ca- like on the website recently is it's not cheap. No, of course not. Right. No. Um. So yeah, so Lillian Vernon was like, or Lillian Minash, I suppose, owner of the Lillian Vernon Corporation, uh, was really innovative in the area of catalogs in so many ways, as we've already discussed, even leaning into this more high-end brand proposition in the 80s, much like Spiegel, um, but also really an early adopter of technology, launched a website, a Lillian Vernon website that you could shop on AOL in 1995, when online shopping Whoa. barely existed. Right. That's like still when you were like waiting 10 minutes to get yeah, on your Yeah, exactly. AOL. Like dial up. I can't even imagine what that website looked like. But that was incredible. I mean, because we're like Delia's, for example, was a little bit of a late adopter of catalog. I mean, of online shopping. So many other retailers were and they went away. But Lillian Vernon mm-hmm. was like, we're going to do this. Now. Yeah. And who even knows it was just for optics at the time. Right, right. Like, yeah. So uh, like a lot of these catalogs, it was bought by other companies as we got into the century and it switched hands several times. So like the current incarnation of Lillian Vernon, which is not much different than it was when we were kids, is not in any way affiliated with the original company. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. But it's still around and it seems like it's it does still okay. around. Yeah. But also, like, as we were looking, I told you, like, one of my favorite toys of my life was a doll from Lillian Vernon catalog. It was like a doll in a box with the little clothes, like all the different outfits mm-hmm. and you, that you could dress her in. And as we're looking through the website, we saw it. It's still there. So like they're still carrying like the same stuff even. Totally, totally. Like the same stuff, not even like the same kind of stuff, the same stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, re- I remembered so many of the toys from our youth and, you know, they're still like what they're – how they're differentiating themselves is like you can get your name put on your Tonka truck or your xylophone mm-hmm. or whatever else it is that you so, get. Right. Yeah, so they're still going with the whole, like, it, here's the thing, but you can put your name on it. Yeah, totally, totally. Get your name on it. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I think that that was what made – I I mean, I remember us getting the Lily and Vernon catalog, and we also got the Toys R Us catalog. And while the Toys R Us catalog was riveting in that it was, like, every toy ever, and we would just, like, pour over it for days and days, like, the Lily and Vernon one felt fancier because, like, it was toys with your name on it. Right. It felt very personalized. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, I don't know, you're probably a kid like me where you wanted the thing that nobody else had. And it's like, well, I have this doll in a box and you have this doll in a box, but does your doll in the box have your name on exactly, it? Exactly. No. <laughs> exactly. And like that seems to be like what they really leaned into. Like just about mm-hmm. everything available on the Lillian Vernon website right now is customizable. Like even, okay. even when it feels weird, like why do you need your name on a xylophone? <laughs> I don't know. Right. Right. Right, right. <laughs> um, so that's Lillian Vernon. So that brings us to like, you know, we're teenagers now, right? We're getting into the teenage era of catalogs for ourselves. And, you know, you and I both grew up in areas where there was like not much going on. I mean, for us to go to Best, we had to drive 45 minutes from our house, you mm-hmm. know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, shopping was pretty minimal. The internet really didn't exist, or at least not in a way that intersected with my home life. Um, And all the ideas I got about clothing came from teenage magazines, right? Or like if I got to watch MTV at my grandma's house. And so Mm -hmm. catalogs, when they arrived, were like a window to something that wasn't available to either of us. Absolutely. Yeah, it was was your access. It was your all-access pass to the fashion world, which like at the time, like, I don't know about you, but I didn't know too much about like the difference between like high fashion and like trends. No, and, like, that not at all. So it was just kind of like fashion is fashion and this is it. And so this enter into this world, Delia's, right? And I would pour over the Delia's catalog for inspiration beyond even just shopping. Like it was similar to Spiegel in that it was editorial but for us. Yeah. And for the first time for us. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> right. And I remember like the models like had a very specific look. They were, uh, and they were posed in like very specific like ways and it was just different. They were having so much fun and it was like sexy fun. Right. <laughs> it was like, like preteen sexy fun. Well, I mean like, like think about the catalogs that were coming to our houses at that point before Delia showed up. It was like, okay, we've got, Spiegel, which is for our moms, maybe a Newport News, also for our moms. We could look mm-hmm. at like Sears or JCPenney or any of those like larger catalogs. The clothes weren't going to be like, I don't know, they were just clothes, right? 
There are basics. Basic. Yeah, J. Yeah. Crew Fun was mix. like really preppy and very expensive. So it's not like we were going to buy those. Exactly. And it was a very specific audience. Right. Too, uh, I feel like. yeah. We did not get a Victoria's Secret catalog at my home, but obviously it would have been very inappropriate for me. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and, it was, and, and that's when it was actually just like underwear. Yeah. And gross. everything was like soft focus, you know? So yes. there wasn't like. Like this was when Dahlia started showing up at my house, it was a really, really big deal. You know, like I was like, what the heck is this? How did they find me? And it was because, of course, I subscribed to like every teen magazine that existed. Right. I was going to say the teen magazines were the gateway. Yeah, for sure. Even like I, oh man, I remember the first teen magazine that I received was literally called Teen. My grandma bought me a subscription um, and I am sure I could not make it through three pages of one of those right now. It was like such drivel. Uh, but mm-hmm. it was like I – when it arrived, like the first week of the month, I was like, oh, my God. I'm going to set aside four hours to read every single <laughs> yes. page of this magazine, even the ads. I was going to say that. You like couldn't even crack it open until you knew you had the time to spend to pour over it every And I saved them it. all, right, so that for reference – because I would go back to oh, them, right? And I mean, I even read the ads. Like, I would read these things like 10 times. I could... Well, that's the thing. And they were 75% ads. Oh, my, even though, like, sometimes yeah. it was sneaky, right? Like, they're... Yeah, I yeah. Remember, but there probably weren't rules then like there are not. now about how you oh have to s- disclose yeah. advertising. So you're just like, oh, yeah. But, it, but for you and me, like, we couldn't... We couldn't, like, it would say, this, this outfit is from wherever. But we couldn't get it. No, not at all. In fact... The only time I remember, like, feeling like, wow, teen is really, like, getting me is, like, they did a layout that was all clothes from Kmart. And I was, like, losing my mind. And it was right around my birthday. And my mom was like, okay, fine. We can go to Kmart. And I got, like, four pieces that were, like, at our local Kmart, which probably, like, now that I've worked in retail for so long like it's not like the Kmart in York Pennsylvania was getting all of the like best stuff anyway they were definitely like not putting the like the most fashionable things there but I remember getting like a tunic with matching leggings and a headband and a few Mm -hmm. other things and feeling like now I am so cool Well, and that was like your first taste of styling yeah totally totally I remember the tunic was like teal with huge uh, black polka dots and like a boat neck. Oh, anyway, that's it felt very cool. <laughs> yeah, my first, uh, yeah, my first uh, Delia's, <laughs> my first Delia's experience was similar. It was a pair of of board shorts. Ah, oh, I love that for you. But they had like they had like little dancing people from the fifties on them. Wow, and. And it was like, I got the Delius catalog and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get board shorts. And I don't, re- I don't know if you remember, I don't know if they were as hot where you were, but it was like, they were oh, yeah. board shorts. Yeah. <laughs> they were so cool. You didn't wear them to the beach. You wore them to school right. and you wore them, you know, go around. But I wanted these board shorts and I just like, I remember my mom walking in and being like, why don't we just order them and we'll see? <laughs> because as I am now, I'm a plus size person. Right. I was a, I was kind of like on like in and out of plus sizing, not even like plus sizing really ex- even existed for me back then. I was just shopping at Lane Bryant really, but it was 
was like, we read the measurements and it's like, it could work. It might work. And like, she was rooting for me. And I was like, just like rooting for me. And they came <laughs> and they, of course, did not fit. Uh, they were like, you know, probably two or three sizes too small. So when you talk about going to Kmart and getting these pieces and pulling together and making it an outfit, what Delia's became to me and to probably a lot of people, I've talked about this on, you know, different, um, you know, social media platforms, um, what Delia's became was uh, a place where you got your accessories because you could fake it. You could go to Lane Bryant and you can get your um, your your black polo shirt, uh, dress. You know, mm-hmm. you remember the polo oh, dresses? Yes. And you would just get the shoes and the bag and the sunglasses from Delia's and all of a sudden you were invited to the party. Totally, you know? totally. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, for me, uh, I couldn't afford the clothing from Delia's. But I could afford the accessories and it was like the same thing like for me where it was like – I couldn't really afford the accessories either but I remember like saving for like one thing. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And then I'd save for like the next thing. And then then my mom brought me to Adelia's warehouse sale. We – we drove probably like two and a half hours and we stood in line for like an hour, two hours. And we finally got (laughs) into this warehouse sale and man, I just like went nuts. Nuts. (laughs) Everybody in there was going nuts. We were going mad. It was like the first warehouse sale they ever had. Yeah, no, I can only imagine because at some point they opened, it was in the late nineties, they opened an outlet store in Reading, Pennsylvania. And I don't know how I got wind of this. They must have well, they probably wouldn't have sent out an email. How would I have known about it? Maybe they sent us a card in the mail. and Yeah, or just, you know, it was like a whisper. I have no idea. Thing, like, but hearsay. My <laughs> yeah. grandma drove me to Reading, and I had to, like, I mean, I wanted to go to this outlet store, but I also was, like, you know, I'm a good kid, was a good kid, still I'm a good kid, was aware that my grandma yeah. had driven me all the way to Reading. So, like, we had to do what she wanted first. So we go to, like, the Vanity Fair outlet, and we go buy Lee jeans for my uncle, and we do all this stuff. And the last thing we do is go to this Delia's outlet, and I went wild. I bet I bought 40 things there because it was, like, T-shirts were, like, $5, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was at that. I've been. I went there too. It was wild. I went there too. We we took a trip just for that store. Oh, it was amazing. To that yeah, outlet store. And it wasn't. It was an amazing store. And it was like one of those things where like the stuff that was in there was still like you know kind of like like the stuff in the catalog. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't too far off. You know, it wasn't like you know you didn't look at it and you're like oh that's like three seasons ago. No, it was like you know? they had tons of great stuff that was really current, and I didn't feel like mm-hmm. oh I'm like the poor girl buying stuff at the Delia's outlet. I was like, wow, now I'm really part of this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like what, like being part of it was, that was the trick, right? Right. They wanted you to want to be a part of it. You wanted to be like having all that fun that they're having. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, do you remember they're like dancing and like laughing, like, and it's just the, the, the models in the catalog, I mean, and it's just like, yeah, I just want to be that. I don't want to do that. And they were just so cool. They were so cool. And it and it wasn't like um it was it was also like they had uh, all kinds of different brands that you couldn't really get your hands on. Especially where we Oh lived. my gosh, like you Roxy. Know, it was like Roxy Quicksilver. Oh, sugar. Like, um, I love that brand. <laughs> sugar. Oh my gosh, sugar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they had a lot. I mean, they they definitely changed over time and started selling more of their like own brand stuff, but like for the 
for what I, at the time period that I think of as like peak Delia's, they had a mix and it just like, it made the whole thing so much cooler. So mm-hmm. unlike some of our other catalogs, uh, Delia's w- at, has never at any point sold guns or houses. Um, right. right. They didn't really, um, they kind of like perfected their art yes. and that's where they stayed, but also may have been their demise, right? Yeah. I mean, well, here, I'll tell you all about it. Are you ready? Oh, tell no, me about I did, it. I'm ready. I did when I first started Closed Horse. One of the first episodes I did was about Delia's, and anybody is welcome to go back and listen to that. But I think this version is going to be way more interesting because Jess is here to add color. So, okay. <laughs> so Delia's was founded in 1993, which at first I was like, wow. I, I don't know. It just seemed like they were around way longer in my life than they really were, which really speaks to how impactful Delia's was, <laughs> it right? It's all, it's all relative, right, you know, right. time moves slower, you know, when you're <laughs> in middle school, I guess. Right, yeah, I guess so. So it was founded actually by two guys, Stephen Kahn and Christopher Edgar. They were former college roommates who lived in New York City in the West Village. And in the beginning, like, they didn't really know what they were doing, but they felt like there's money in selling clothes in a catalog to women like that that was where they were and and they weren't wrong mm-hmm. right but they just, right, of right. Course. so they decided to focus on college age women and it just didn't really go very well for them uh they did this thing where rather than like mailing out catalogs to people it was kind of like almost like the avon lady but of college campuses so they would hire representatives on campus to like sling this stuff to their friends Okay, so it was feeling very MLM. Very MLM, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they did $139,000 in sales in their first year, which is not not great. And after they deducted the cost of the inventory and the catalogs and gave the representatives their cut and all this other stuff, there was just nothing left. And, yeah. I, you know, I'm sure that they were like, what should we do next? They were probably, there's probably a lot of panicking, et cetera. Then they decided, hey, wait a minute. What about teenage girls? Um, and what about teenage girls all around the country? And what if we cut out these college representatives, et cetera, this Avon lady model, and we just sell directly to them? And the first year they did this, their sales increased to $5 million, like right out of the gate. Like it was like, oh, wow. it was very obvious that this was the right choice. And, you know, teenage girls right. were the fastest growing part of the population in the mid to late 90s because – all the millennial girls, like the oldest millennial girls, were starting to grow up. You know, we've got the zenial girls. And, you know, there's going to be the younger millennial girls in the pipeline, right? So mm-hmm. this was like a great time to start. And nobody had ever really Nobody done had it. done it at all. Absolutely. Right. And they were following, and they were following that curve of teen mag- magazines. Yeah. I mean. It, 17. Yeah. And, you know, YM and uh, all those. It's so interesting <laughs> to me that no one did this before 1993 because – Teen magazines were such a big business for so long. But like people still, even when I think of like the mall stores that were around when I was young, like not even a teenager, but like a child, like think about like Gap or Express or Limited or all those stores. Like they weren't for teenage girls either. They were like for women, I guess. Just women. Yeah, I think it was. Right, just women. And it was probably one of those things where nobody was really realizing that that was even a market. Like they either put those girls or us girls really into um, the child category or the adult category. Like I was squarely in the adult category because I was a size, you know, 14, 16 by then. 
but um yeah they, nobody knew where where to put them or they would just automatically put them somewhere and never realize that there's a whole market right there in your totally face. it was i started high school i was four foot eight inches um and mm-hmm. uh it meant that I couldn't fit into adult size clothing because like, you know, I'd have to roll the pants up to my knees basically like, you know, and it was like really painful for me because there was like, if you were a tween or a young teenager, there were not options, right? You could either dress like your mom, right? Right. Which is what I did because I had no other choice. Or you could dress like a child, which is Mm -hmm. what I had to do. Um, and yeah. I do remember this being the era of like you go to school and the girls who went through puberty first were dressed like they were going to go work at the bank later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we would have the same outfit on. That was me. Yeah. I was six feet tall yeah, in eighth exactly, grade or whatever. Exactly. And um, I would have like the same outfit on as like the school secretary. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, I looked like I had gotten lost. Uh, like gotten off the wrong bus and ended up at high school. Yeah. And so like, it was a really weird time. So it's, I think that what shocks me most about the Delia story is it took someone until 1993 to figure this out. Let's take a moment to thank a new supporter of Close Horse, Athletic Greens. They have a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because it's important that I feel as healthy and energized as possible if I'm going to be able to do all the stuff I need to do in a given day, from working my day job to creating clothes horse to reading my ever-growing mountain of books. This means I need a supplement that fits into my life easily and is actually enjoyable to take. I've taken some very unenjoyable supplements. For a while, it seemed like half my suitcase for every business trip was just bottles of vitamins, and AG1 has changed my life because it only takes up a tiny, tiny bit of space in my bag, and I really enjoy taking it. Who says that about a supplement? I have never said that before, but I mean it. I've been on it for a few months now, and I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical with a hint of vanilla taste that I actually look forward to each morning. I'm I'm serious. I I'm excited to drink it in the morning. So you're probably asking, like, what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all of the things you care about. It's very lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, or only Taco Bell, AG1 fits for you. It also costs you less than $3 a day. It's way cheaper, trust me, I did the math, than getting all of the different supplements yourself, which I appreciate as a very thrifty person. I also love that I'm skipping all of the plastic packaging ways for all of the supplements I was taking in the past. So many containers. I am not an athlete. When I do work out, it's in very uncool pajamas. But AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits for me. It's one thing I can do every single day to take great care of myself. 
For every purchase, Athletic Greens donates to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the United States. In 2020 alone, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. My other vitamins weren't doing anything for anybody else except filling up my suitcase. Right now is a great time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. Shake it up and enjoy it. There's no need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Seriously, the first thing I do every morning, well, first I feed the cats, but then I mix up my scoop of of AG1 with some water, I shake it up, and I sit on the couch and drink it while I listen to NPR, and it is delightful. To make it easy, because I know you're so jealous, you want to try this now, Athletic Greens is going to offer you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash clotheshorse. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash clotheshorse to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You know, we're in the 90s now. Delia's is like starting to figure it out here. And like they were able to just build this business so fast because there were so many teen and tween girls at this point. According to the New York-based Rand Youth Poll in 1997, girls between the ages of 10 and 12 spent just $2.60 per week on clothing. But their older sisters, who would have been the Delia's customer – had allowances, part-time jobs, birthday money, their parents' credit cards if they were super lucky. They were spending almost $30 per week on clothing and apparel. All that babysitting. All that right. babysitting. That's like 60 bucks right now in 2022. Yeah. So like they were spending a lot of money on clothes. Um, honestly, probably teenage girls are spending less money on clothes now because clothes are cheaper and they're getting more. Um, clothes were expensive when you and I were that age. Like comparatively, mm-hmm. it's kind of wild to think about it. It is. It really is. So what was great about Delia's, among many things, one, they were serving this customer that just was not being served by anyone unless you wanted to go to like a junior's department at a department store where it wasn't going to, I mean, you would see brands like Guess or like Esprit, mm-hmm. but in general, it, Jordache, Jordache, yes. yeah, but it wasn't like, I don't know, it wasn't like editorial. It wasn't. It wasn't fashion, you know. It was just brands. Yeah, it was kind of like a an afterthought. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. To, like stuff you were selling to your mom, you know. So that was like one thing. Like they were already offering this product that no one else was offering, but also small town and suburban girls could have the opportunity to dress like they lived in New York City, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yes. So Delia's is like killing it, right? Then they start placing advertisements in teen magazines. And then, you know, everybody, I mean, you and I were there, we're reading every single page of every single issue. These ads were everywhere. Everybody's requesting a catalog. And in this time period, which we're going to touch on a few times, the most valuable thing you could have as any retailer was a whole bunch of addresses for potential customers. Like people (laughs) would pay top dollar for access to your mailing list. So, By 1996, Delia's had more than 1 million names in its database. 
They were distributing wow. catalogs in the United States and Japan. They were doing $30 million in sales per year. I mean, this was just so huge. Yeah, lightning in a jar. Right. For sure. So they took Delia's public. Um, they immediately raised $20 million. They did a secondary offering six months later because this is just how on fire Delia's was. And they brought in another $20 million in financing. So they were able to just like grow and grow and grow. Eventually, they opened that outlet store. But like at that point, they were like, we're not opening stores. Like our focus here is the catalog. Um, Mm -hmm. And apparently, I found this article in the LA Times from 1997. And you know, they the company CEO at that time said, like, listen, we had a difficult time in the beginning convincing investors that a catalog for teenage girls was a successful business idea. But they were able to sell it by first off coining the term magalog, which you and I love. Combination of magazine yes. and catalog. And I will say, like, Delia's love a combined word. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and Delia's like embodied it, right? Like, the way we used yeah. it was not just for shopping, it was for inspiration and daydreaming and all these yeah. other things. And you'd like, you'd cut those pictures out and you'd put them on your binder and dream about the outfits. And yeah. totally. And so they were able to sell this idea, this magalog idea to investors and say, like, listen, we're going to be like MTV, but for clothing. <laughs> So we're going to, I mean, (laughs) imagine saying that in 2022, people would be like, what? Like full of weird reality shows? I don't even know what's on (laughs) MTV now. I, I, yeah, I couldn't tell. But you have to imagine in the 90s, like, and I will speak to this from my own experience, like MTV was killing it, right? Yes. Right. So if you went to an investor and said, listen, this catalog, this Magalog is going to be like MTV and that it's going to be serving customers' brands and aesthetics, and they're going to love it, and they're going to keep coming back for more, just like they do MTV. Investors are like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, like let me get my checkbook, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And talk about another thing that seventy five percent ads. Oh, seriously, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> yeah. Like it would be like a thirty minute um, show, and it would be like seven minutes and of I, the actual show. You know, it's funny. Like if I get an ad on Hulu right now, I'm like, oh god, you're ruining everything, blah. But like. <laughs> I swear back then I was like immune to ads. I, I, it's like my brain didn't differentiate them from the real content at all. Well, but I think that, I, I think that was bad design. Yeah. They made the ads like a part of the programming to look like the programming and to give you the same feeling as the programming. And so it was just became a whole, you remember house of style? Oh, oh loved it. <laughs> it's so good. But that is what I'm thinking of when I say that it was, it was seven minutes of the actual show. And then like the 23 minutes that were left were just ads for things that could be on the show. When we finally got cable television, we lived so far out in the sticks. It wasn't even available where we lived until around the time I started high school. And I will tell you that if it was like the summer or a weekend, I would watch MTV for like 12 hours at a time. Easy. Easy, yeah. right? Every Easy. Everything. Well, and there also, like, there wasn't, even, like, with cable, there wasn't, like, 300 channels. Mm-mm. It was, like, maybe, like, 45 or 50 channels, <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. So. Totally. And so Delia's was, like, way ahead of its time in so many ways, right? Like, the catalog, the magalog, if you will, allowed Del- Delia's to sell a lifestyle in addition to products. And you and I both know... I mean, you know, we both worked for 
for example, that it was all about selling a lifestyle when we were there. Absolutely. But Delia's really started this, I think. I mean, I think Spiegel was going for that, but with like a different customer. I think that there was previously not, why would you sell a lifestyle to teenagers? What's the point? You know, like that's what Mm -hmm. people were thinking. But I think this honestly set up the millennials as a generation to be really obsessed with lifestyle identity, identity that comes from brands. Which continues. Continues. Totally that. continues. It's all Delia's fault. Um, also, <laughs> like, Delia's really foreshadowed the direct-to-consumer fashion revolution, which we saw play out in the early days of e-commerce, like, where these mm-hmm. brands were solely online, which I got to tell you, like, was something that, you know, and we take it for granted now, like a brand you could only buy online, like big whoop. But like back <laughs> in the early aughts, it was like, that'll never work. How will you ever run a business without having stores? And then we we got Nasty Gal and Mod Cloth and Glossier. And I mean, there's like a million other brands, right? That only right. sell online. And all mm-hmm. of that, that path to being a brand that you can't buy in a real store began with Delia's. Right. And right. and Delia's really sold this idea, this lifestyle that you just by calling 1-800-DELIA-NEW-YORK, that was the number, uh, you could be a part of that lifestyle. You could be like that co- super cool, having a great time, being kind of edgy and like different than everybody else. You could be that person just by mm-hmm. getting your parents' credit card or – filling out the form in the center of the catalog, mailing it off with a check it's and waiting. Sending it in, folding it, putting it in. Envelope. And yeah. <laughs> waiting, I don't know, four to six weeks is what I guess I'm guessing it was. I mean, I'm thinking like at least 21 days. Yeah, so at least three weeks. Yeah, at, yeah, least. at least. And like if there were holidays, add some time in there. You know? Right, so it was probably 21 business days. So you oh, have to like go through the calendar. Oh and be like, I remember like going through the calendar and counting and be like, okay, maybe like this week it'll be there and I'll wait for it. And it just made it very exciting and very special. Very, very special. Yeah, very, very special. So when you got it, you finally got it. You just coveted it. And I guarantee their return rate was probably a tiny, tiny decimal point of returns because you would have had to go mail that back off after you waited three or four weeks for it. No, you're keeping that, right? Of right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're just going to like, you're just going to make it work. Like, I think those board shorts probably went to my sister. I very highly doubt that we said No, I doubt it. I doubt it. I feel like returning things was just like not a thing back then. And I do think like when you and I were talking about this episode and like planning it out, when when we got off the phone, I was really thinking a lot about, and I'm still like piecing this together in my mind, but how e-commerce and the ability to get product faster and faster and faster made us less like emotionally connected to it. And so we're more we're more likely to return it or never wear it or not care about it as much. Or just throw, yeah. Yeah, throw it out. Yeah. It's that like disposable clothing kind of idea. Every time Delia's comes up on social media, like on the clothes horse account, like people have stories of like, I bought this coat or I got it for Christmas and like, I still have it or like I wore it mm-hmm. a million times and like my mom has it. Like it, it, it was very different than like the relationship I have in like, from like 2010 going to Forever 21 every Tuesday with my friend Rachel to get clothes to wear that weekend. 
you know? Mm -hmm. It's that that weekend and that weekend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Delia's also just had, like, their product assortment was so on point, as we know, you know, crop tops, wide leg pants, chokers, the cutest backpacks, girl size skate sneakers, platform Mary Janes, um, all, everything was so on point. And I found out that one of the reasons it was just, like, so perfect was that even though the company was founded by men and they ran the company, they hired young women to pick the product, like buyers who were really the customer. Yeah, genius. Genius, genius. right. Because I'm going to tell you, not the case in a lot of places I've worked. Um, In fact, some of the places I worked, it was sort of like, I don't know, like management and the buyers kind of looked down on the customer as like, ah. She only likes the worst stuff. I'm going to go buy some more terrible stuff (laughs) that I will never wear. And, like, I like to imagine that if you went into the Delia's office, everybody working there was wearing Delia's clothing. And that is just, like, not a situation if you went to most retailers right now and checked out the buying team. Well, let me tell you, I did go to the Delia's office. What? (laughs) Okay, what was it like? Okay, I was such a super fan. Uh And my family was taking, like, my whole family, my aunts and my cousins and you know my mom and my sister and I were going to New York City and I was like you know where you know it's in New York City mom Delia's (laughs) and she's like well I don't know like I don't think it's like really you know a real place and I was like no we have to go there or we have to get in the elevator and go up and we have to talk to someone there and so my mom the best mom ever brought me to the like the office building Oh my God. And um, we just like kind of like walked in. There was no, it wasn't anything fancy. It was just like kind of like a, you know, just like a regular office building. We got in the elevator, we went up. The elevator like opened like to the workspace. What? (laughs) Yeah. And there were young women all sitting there in Delia's clothes. Of course. Like, no, no, nobody, any, like not anybody like super highly styled or anything, but like, you know, at work wearing the clothes and they're like, yeah, we don't really have anything here. We just are like the, it was kind of like the place where I guess you could call and order stuff. Like it was more like administrative and it was just the, the, wow. it was the address, it was the address that was on the catalog. And that's where we went. Wow, that is so cool, yeah. wow. And they're like, sorry, we don't have anything here. But um, they let me, like, order something from the catalog and, like, they sent it to us. Like, they gave us, like, a huge discount and didn't pay for it. Like, they paid for shipping. Like, wow. that's how they, like. And I, I remember it was, like, a, a, a baby doll shirt with, like, a dragon um, velvet applique. Wow. And I had that shirt for years. And I loved it. It was, like, my souvenir from Julia's office. Wow. But yeah, you're right. Like it was all young women like that were working there. So I imagine like even, you know, going up the company, it was probably, you know, they kind of had that feeling throughout. I I, I mean, that's the only way I can see it working and, and being so successful is if they like fully immerse them. Totally, in, totally. And I think that that's why so many other brands miss now because like they're people making the decisions about the product are really like connected to the product, you know? Yeah, right. It's it's about fat, you know, speed and money and Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Delia's was also very successful because they brought brands 
to their customers who were living all over the, you know, the United States and I guess also Japan. Uh, they brought them brands that like you could only get if you like lived in a big city or like near a skate shop, like Sugar, Roxy, Rocket Dog. Um, tons of other skate brands that don't exist anymore. When I was researching this, like I found so many brands. I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh Mm -hmm. wow. I remember that from seeing that in Sassy, you know, that kind of stuff. And so most of those brands were in New York or LA. And if you lived in, you know, Collingswood, New Jersey or wherever you were, like you couldn't (laughs) get it, right? You certainly couldn't get it in Manchester, Pennsylvania, where I lived. And so like these were brands that suddenly we could get access to. It's interesting. I remember back when I was researching the Delia's episode that I did back in 2020, that there were a lot of people who, you know, analyze and think about these things and write think pieces about Delia's and such, right? They credit or blame, you pick you pick your favorite term there, <laughs> uh, Delia's for basically ending regionalism, meaning that suddenly everyone could have access to everything. Um, And previously, especially as a teenager, uh, what you wore, the culture, the trends that you lived within were dictated by where you lived and the people around you, not by external factors. And so suddenly Delia sweeps in and everybody can get Rocket Dog, right? Everyone can get baby doll tees or shirts with dragons on them or whatever. But previous to that, like, you wouldn't have even seen that at school. Like we always had yeah. the trends that came and went. I specifically in my middle school were so bizarre. Like I remember one year it was like wearing boat shoes without socks and they had to be straight laced, <laughs> yes. right? I remember barn jackets with corduroy collars. Oh my gosh, yes. We kind of were in the same region. Totally. So ours were so similar, maybe right? We to ask, yeah, so it, it was similar. Right. I remember there was this shirt, which I never had, but it came from Express, and it was just like a basic ribbed shirt that was like a boat neck with three-quarter sleeves, and every color it came in was ugly, and every girl who was popular had it. Um, hmm. That was like a thing. A spree tote bags were huge. Yes, I do remember that. I still I want the one. T-shirts. What are those t-shirts that like we would? They would like change color. Hyper color. Hyper yeah. hyper color. Yeah, I remember that. Like there were a lot of like yeah, there were a lot of things like that. But you know, to blame Delius for that entirely, I don't know because I was like you know we were watching TV. Yeah. We were watching like Full House. Totally, totally. I mean, if I were going to blame anything for the end of regionalism, I would say it's the internet. And this is something that Dustin and I talk about all the time is like, you know, aged hipsters. We're like, remember when we were kids and if you wanted Manic Panic, you had to drive like three hours. Like I would have to go get someone to drive me to like Baltimore if I wanted to get like cool punk hair dye. I mean, I guess you could have gone into like South Street or something and like, but it was like a destination, right? And now like if I wanted Manic Panic, I could could probably have it by tomorrow by ordering it online. And so I think the internet really obliterated regionalism, but it's interesting to think about Delia's being the first the first, I don't know, seed of it all. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it does. Yeah. I, I mean, the two places that you mentioned, like, are California and New York. And those were two very distinct styles yeah. at the time. And then and emerged the two, among others. And Japanese fashion. I mean, you're saying, like, in Japan, it was a big deal. And that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think, like, and Delia's helped a lot of brands that were very small in that time period, whether they were in New York or LA or 
Japan, helped them actually build up business and gain wider distribution. So Delia's definitely did have an impact on the brands that even exist now. By giving yeah, that makes a ton totally of sense. Totally makes sense, right? But it, but it also is like kind of sad in a way because it. I remember the products being so high quality, oh, like so, so delicious. Yeah, handmade. it was almost like it was handmade, like handmade by someone you know, like that kind of quality. Totally, and totally. Um, you know, and I'm sure it gave rise to like you know fast fashion. Absolutely, it really did. As these small, because they were small businesses, and as they grew, they you know, it, they looked for cheaper and cheaper ways to manufacture. And, you know, I'm preaching to the choir at this point, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, even Delia's yeah. itself, like in the beginning, it, it was like this mix of these really special brands and then their own product. And by the time we got into this century, it was all their own product, except for maybe some mm-hmm. t-shirts. And it was starting to show the signs of fast fashionization, right? Yes. Um, you and I talked about how there was like you know, there were stores. I remember there was one in the King of Prussia Mall and I I was really excited to see it. I went in there one time and I never went in again because it was like 95% graphic tees. And I was yes. just like, I don't, well. Racks, you, and, racks, yeah, and, racks and racks. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, wow, yeah. you've really squandered because like in my mind, Delia's was like one of the most fashionable places you could shop for quite mm-hmm. a while, right? And definitely yeah. until I went to college and, and moved to New York City. And then like there were even more options, but I still looked at Delia's as, as really cool. And then, you know, that kind of dissipated. Yeah. And I think it was one of those things where um, they got that like feeling with the cat. You got a feeling with the catalog that did not translate in stores. That's something that Urban Out- Outfitters has always was always good at. Mm-hmm. Like the catalog translated so beautifully in the stores. Right. They put so much effort into their into to this day to into their store designs and you know have people that just do that. Um, and dealers didn't really do that. No, it was like junk. It, it was like a it was like a like kind of sparse. It could have been a wet like, seal, you know. It could have been a wet seal, but it wasn't even as like cool. It didn't even have, feel as cool as the wet no, seal. No, not even. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it yeah. felt very young at that point, but like younger than teen, like more tween. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So you know, Delia's was all about this lifestyle, and so you know they started with clothes and accessories and shoes, but eventually expanded to stickers, pens, school supplies. They even put out. It started as like an insert, like a home decor catalog with like cute bedding, but then it turned into like a full on its own catalog of like inflatable chairs and bedding mm-hmm. and, and beaded curtains and lamps and you yep. know it all. And it was expensive. Oh, I do. Yeah. My, my, my best friend, Lauren, her dad, um, you know, her parents got divorced and her dad got bought a new house and she was able to decorate her room and it was like what? that. She got to pick out like everything. Oh my God. That, that housewares, when they got into like the real housewares yeah. stuff, the whole room, I could still see it. It was, uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was am- I, I bet because I was looking at some of the like home decor stuff a few days ago and I was like, wow, like I would buy this now. Like there's there's some really cool, really cool prints, yeah. you know? Uh-huh. Very cool prints. Very cool. And just like the sh- everything was like like kind of like bubbly, like you know, rounded. Yeah, and, yeah. And and uncomfortable and scratchy. Yeah. But still loved it. Loved it. Yeah, yeah. Uh you know, the thing about Delia's is, like, it felt really expensive to me. And I think that's because, like, all clothes were expensive when we were that age. Like, 
I, it must be so weird to be a teenager now and go on Shein and buy like 10 things for 50 bucks or whatever. But that was mm-hmm. just like not what it was when we were that age, right? And so I always thought Delia's was really expensive. But when I started to really look, Delia's pricing was the same as everything else you could buy at the mall if you went to like Express or The Gap. But it was like a thousand times cooler. And it was like especially for you, not just something you were buying because that's all that was being offered to you. And so it felt like even though it wasn't a luxury price point, it felt very aspirational. And like when you bought something from Delia's, you were buying into this like much bigger thing that meant you were cool. Mm -hmm. And I think that like that whole idea gave rise to the others like it. Totally. That um, went even beyond what that or tried to go even beyond what Delia's was. Totally. Totally. Became. Yeah. And so like. Magalogs. Magalogs. So (laughs) Delia's was like killing it, right? And they kept buying more and more mailing lists from magazines and from other catalogs and just like building their circulation. They did stuff like send out really cool music CDs and surprise gifts when you made a purchase. You know, they like Mm -hmm. put in little postcards and they were really doing all these things that like e-commerce brands would really get obsessed with in this century with the whole like idea of like unboxing and you know like that kind of stuff Mm, in a mm pre-social media era this is like pretty pretty wild so in 1997 Delia's is like we're gonna get on the internet and they bought a company called Girl Interactive it was G-U-R-L Right. And this was a website uh, started by three female students at NYU uh, called girl.com, where they had magazine style articles, games, bullet bulletin boards, chat rooms. It was very like of the time. So Delia's buys girl.com. Um, and they really like, you know, they wanted the women who had started it to be kind of like leading the Delia's online experience. And so like they wanted to continue having girl.com as this platform for this other content, sort of like taking the Magalog idea to the internet. But then it would also be like, oh, while you're here, here's a link to the Delia's website to buy things. Okay. Right. I think like I very vaguely remember this. I totally had a girl.com email address for a very long time. (laughs) Well, I feel like when you and I met, I probably still had that email address and used it occasionally. Um, wow. I wish I could get it back. Uh, yeah. Right? It was it was great. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it seemed like like this was great. Like I remember actually going to the girl.com website, you know, in the – I mean, I definitely did not spend a lot of time on the internet uh, for quite a long time because, you know, like internet was expensive. It was like kind of a luxury. I mean, you paid by the minute in many situations, right? That's right. right. That's right. But I would like, if I went to like the computer lab at school, I would totally go read girl.com while I was there, like between doing homework <laughs> or whatever. And yeah. uh, I, I actually remember a friend and I would frequently go to the computer lab that was in the basement of the library at NYU. And we would be down there for like eight hours on the internet, like chatting with people and stuff. It was just like a weird, Gosh. a weird time. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that time. The chat yeah, room sure. era. So girl. <laughs> chat room era. Yes. Dangerous. <laughs> Girl.com was like of the chat room era, which was like pre-social media, right? But chat rooms were social media. Same where these bulletin boards were like, someone would come in and post like, oh my God, I'm so obsessed with this song. Who else is? And people would just reply. It's kind of like Reddit mm-hmm. actually is now, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. 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 Or Quora or like any of those. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So 
Man, but also like look really creepy too. Oh my god! Yeah, I. <laughs> there would always be like you'd be in a chat room and everything would be fine. It'd be fine. <laughs> like we're just like we're talking about like um, Nirvana, and then all of a sudden, like like some creep comes in. And they're like, you know, they'll say something like really horrible. Right? Yeah. No. Totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, all right, this one's at you know, this one's expired. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So you. So this is 1997, and this is like ahead of the curve, I would say. And you were like. If if we're gonna stop the story here, I would be like, okay. And then Delia's big like conquered e-commerce and is the biggest retailer in the world right now. But we know that's not true. So like, what no. happened, right? Well, first, like 1997 continued to be probably like the biggest year for Delia's in terms of like doing new stuff. So they started their own home catalog that was totally independent of Delia's. It was called Contents. I totally remember it. What? I remember getting it like one time and I swear there was a bedding set that was like a blue sky with white clouds and I swear if I could find it now. Oh I would my use it. gosh. Yeah. No, I had it. Stop. I had it and oh gosh, I got to find a picture of it. I had it and I loved it and I painted my walls to match what? it. So my bedding and I'm sure I got it from there. I'm sure of it. And so my bedding and my walls. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Okay, I'm well, sorry. that is like to this day, it's like goals for me to like find it secondhand somewhere um, just so I can like live live my best life. Um, so that was like contents came out. I don't think, I couldn't find a lot of information about contents. I think it lasted for like a year or two. But like a lot of Delia's stuff of this time, I think they just like overdid it and like things kind of, went in and out really fast yeah well it's like that point that you can usually see with businesses that have failed where they just got a little too greedy right right totally <laughs> you know and totally. they and they stopped paying attention to what the the heart of it was which was the experience right so next they launched delias.com which you know tied into girl.com like okay this is good right they also bought a huge database of tina addresses um, so now they had 11 million names on their mailing list. But I, one thing I want you Whoa. all to remember is that when you are a teenager, life changes so fast, right? And mm -hmm. one day Delia's mm -hmm. is right for you. And the next day you're like, no, I'm into Urban Outfitters now, right? Yes. And it's a very, totally. yeah, and it's a narrow, narrow window. Right. And it's a fickle, fickle Which time. I think is another part <laughs> of the problem Delia's faced. So they've got the home catalog. They've got girl.com. They've got all these lists of people who are rapidly becoming adults. Next, they launched, uh, I remember this, a catalog called Droog, D-R-O-O-G, the first ever catalog aimed solely at teenage boys. Um, and, and it was like oh, I do not. Do, yeah, this do was know, this is no. There's no. This was this very story. short lived, just like contents, probably shorter, um, because like. Teenage boys did not want to shop from Delia's, you know? No, um, no. I think also this was like a same time where I think a lot of people who like, you know, were running the show financially for like publishing and Delia's, et cetera, were like, oh, well, now we got teenage girls. Let's get teenage boys. They're the same, right? As if they're right. the same. Right. And so yeah. Sassy yeah, launched. No. Remember Sassy things. had Dirt, which like they put out like yes. maybe four or five issues of. And that was like, oh, yeah, teenage boys don't want to read this, right? 
I, I do remember that. Now, did you get this Droog catalog because you had a brother or did it just – I think it just showed up. It, uh, it just showed up okay. um, probably addressed to me. Um, and then I guess the conceit would be that I would show it to my brother or something. And it was cool. Like yeah. I, for a very long time, I had such a crush on anyone, regardless of gender, who was like a skater. Like Yo, obsessed. Absolutely. Like I would – I remember in college, I – one year I had a room, like I had a triple and my bed actually fit in the closet and I wallpapered the entire closet with photos from Trans World Skate. Uh, and <laughs> like I – so I remember Droog had that aesthetic. So for me, it was probably like receiving the Victoria's Secret catalog for other households where yeah. I was like, oh, my <laughs> That's God. That's so funny. No, I, I definitely shared in that. I remember like in Clueless how like the skateboarding guy, he was like the less desirable guy. And I was like, no, do not understand, cannot compute. I know. He's like number one. He's like number one in my book. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that was me. Like I would, I would during like breaks in school, like go sit over like at Astor Place and watch the skaters and just be like, maybe one of them will talk to me or look at me. <laughs> I'm cool, right? Um, and that was definitely like how I dressed. Like the day I arrived at college, I remember I was wearing a humongous alien workshop tee that someone had given me and these really huge wide leg corduroy pants that were from the boys department at Gabriel Brothers that I think were Levi's or something. And like, I felt like I was so cool, but then like nobody at NYU dressed like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, absolutely. No, that tracks. And also just going from like being cool and fashionable in your small town to when I went to school in New York City, the Fashion Institute of oh, Technology, gee, feeling like, oh, God, yeah. it's like small fish, big pond. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's like people, like m- people across the hall. It was like a senator's daughter and she's wearing all pride. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was exactly like I got to college and I was like, wow, I don't fit in here at all. I guess I should. Yeah. yeah, that still happens to me every time I go to New York City. I'm like, I look great. And then I get there and I'm and like, oh, there. I'm such a dirtbag. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm such a yeah, dud. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and they all, and everybody knows it. They're like, did you get that purse for free? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. 
Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. So anyway, so... Delia's is spending money like it's going out of style, but they were also making so much money. Like that year, 1998, they made $80 million in profit, which is, I mean, 
none of the businesses I've worked for in this century were outside of for making that kind of profit, you know, in one year. Wow. Yeah. Um, so in 1999, they're like, wow, we have all this money. We're launching all these catalogs that might be ill-advised. You know what we should do now? We should start opening stores. And so they opened their first store in White Plains, New York in 1999. And 10 years later, there were 115 stores across the United States. Ooh, 10 years in the yeah. ten- span of 10 years. But of course, and this has played out other places I worked, cough, cough, nasty gal. Uh, they <laughs> signed some really expensive leases on these stores. And the stores just never made enough money to cover that. Um, and mm. I mean, this is just like so many businesses go out of, go under mm. because of oh, this yeah, and yeah. Delia's was, it was like killing them. And they also were having a lot of issues with, with getting into e-commerce. They tried to spin off Delia's.com into its own business. It didn't really work. So they brought it back in. They were losing money. Technologically, they were just so far behind. They just couldn't catch up. And then they started buying – I feel like they were just desperate um, it, by the early aughts. They were just buying every children's apparel catalog that was out there in the hopes of just, like, bringing these people in as Delia's ca- customers or expanding their product offering. They – Like a like a long game, I guess so. But thing. then they were like, oh. oh, shit, we're running out of money. So by 2001, they sold off all of their, like, non-core – Delia's specific properties, including Droog contents, all these things. They sold girl.com to 17. All oh, right. So they were just like having, wow. uh, having a hard time. But rewinding back into the late 90s, competitors began to pop up everywhere. And they were, in some cases, doing what Delia's had been doing, but doing it better, right? Better. So, so right. there was Moxie Girl which had a 76-page mm-hmm. magalog. Um, they were from Manhattan Beach, California. And they actually, in addition to it being a full-ass catalog of things you could buy with some, like, articles and stuff mixed in, they also had advertisements in it from wow. other companies. Yeah. Did you ever buy anything from Moxie Girl? Do you remember this one? I do. I bought my freshman year uh, homecoming dress Ooh. from Moxie Girl. Yes. And it was awesome. It was like my first body con type Ooh. of dress. <laughs> and I loved it. It was great. <laughs> I remember buying I, – I, I, there's no way I dreamed this – a beret that had a butterfly embroidered on it, which is like so something I would have worn then. <laughs> yeah, loved a butterfly. Wait, you think you think, you think you dreamed it up, or you're I'm, sure you're sure? I you're... there's no way I dreamed this up, right? Like I remember no, ordering something no. from Moxie Girl one time, and I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And I remember thinking like, yeah. no one else will ever have a beret with a butterfly embroidered on it. Um, and so I don't know why I'm like discrediting myself. Because I remember only buying from them one time. Because I feel like Moxie Girl wasn't really around for that long. No, it wasn't. I think I I only bought from them that one time as well. So next there was Girlfriends LA. Um, Yes. And this one, I might be remembering it wrong, but I thought that they were a lot more size inclusive. Am I imagining that? They went, yes. It was the first one. So there were like five 
in that era, five catalogs. Dailies was obviously the first one, and the rest of them were kind of piggybacking off of it. But um, Girlfriend LA was the one that went up to 3X, which was unheard oh, of. It had for never, sure. never been done yeah. before. Yeah. And at that, at that time, I was no longer in plus sizing. Um, but uh, I just, I still remember it. And then, like, later on, you know, when I was again, it was something that was avail- actually available to me. So I appreciated it before Torrid. Yeah, this was, this a, was you know, time pre-Torrid. So for plus sizes, you had like weird stuff from the department store that probably looked like something your mom would wear or Lane Bryant, which was also for grown ass women, right? Like it just wasn't, yeah. if, you were, if you were a teen, you were out of luck, right? So Right, right. And the other thing that they did that was really unusual and still is unusual to this day is that <clears throat> it was like, <clears throat> excuse me, it was like most of the product line was yeah, size Yeah, uh, incredible. I remember that. I don't mm-hmm. think I ever bought I almost anything. Like, I remember like, I remember like not really believing it. <laughs> I mean like, oh. It's too good to be true because it's wild. It was like, <laughs> right, it's so wild. Like it's never been done. So you don't even like. I didn't yeah, even yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild. Like very ahead of its time. And then, yeah, I just remember it. Like, I remember it, however, being like a little bit less. Yeah, it wasn't as cool. It wasn't as cool. I remember that it was and it definitely had a lot of like homecoming dresses and like, I don't know, it was very it was very teenage girl, but not in like a cool way. Like it just wasn't. Yeah, I, I don't know. But the size inclusivity was so unheard of. I mean, even now. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay, so next, there were two different catalogs, which I remember getting that were, I I don't know if they were both owned by Alloy, but there was Alloy, which was massive. And there was another one called Airshop. And I remember Airshop was a little bit more ravery, which was great because at this point, I was like, oh, yeah, now I'm a raver. It was a short-lived window where I did a lot of drugs. Uh, me too. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, and my God. And scream at the mall. Like, that's where we, of course. That's where we were. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, exactly. I was very short-lived, whereas Alloy was, like, massive. I definitely ordered Genco's from Airshop, (laughs) (laughs) okay, Uh, and probably some sort of baby tea to go with it, um, for sure. But Alloy, I would say, of all of the catalogs we've talked about, is probably the one that I shopped the most often. Um, And as an adult, like a young adult, but, like, it was around for – quite a bit longer and alloy had you could like shop online yes. you know it was uh and so they actually both airshop and alloy began as websites and then started sending out catalogs and alloy was so on fire and just so good at what it was doing that they bought girlfriends la as oh, well okay so alloy ends up and we're going to come back to this in a minute but alloy ends up being like the number one rival of Delius. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if it wasn't Delius for me, and I, at this point was like such a catalog, like a snob. If it wasn't <laughs> Delius, then it was Alloy. Totally. And Alloy was cool. It had all, it was a lot more focused on brands than Delius was at that point, where it was like your Roxy, the sugar, all the things, you know, all the brands that like as a teenager and like a y- early 20s person of that time period, I was like, these are the coolest mm-hmm. brands. Like Alloy focused on those. And I definitely shopped from Alloy more regularly than any of these other places. Um, They also would have really sick sales, I remember. Like a, literally imagine 
a catalog coming to your house that is a clearance catalog <laughs> is so wild. Oh, that's right. They would put out just clearance catalogs, right? And it would be like a smaller size. Like it wouldn't be the full width of the other right. catalog. But when it showed up, you were like, holy shit, I better get on the mm-hmm. phone right yeah, now. Yeah, everything would yeah. sell out. Like by the time it got to you, it was probably everything was Yeah, gone. what a wild, what a wild idea, yeah. right? So, okay. So it's 2003 and Delia's is in a bad place. They're selling off everything. They kind of have just, they're losing money on all these stores and they're just starting to lose kind of their cachet a little mm-hmm. bit. Their website is busted. No one's using it. In swoops Alloy. Even though Alloy started their business two years after Delia's, they were in a much stronger financial place than Delia's had been for quite a while. Um, They'd never bought other catalogs the way Delia's had been. They'd never opened brick-and-mortar stores, which are cash drain. Um, They had done this really smart thing where they bought other marketing companies, like direct-to-consumer marketing companies, so they could expand their reach to teenagers. And they, better than Delia's ever had, had nailed the logistics of warehouses and shipping, Uh, order fulfillment, all that stuff, whereas Delia's was very inefficient. Yeah, well, they went from, like, just being kind of, like, drop ship, right? Or maybe, like, you know, small, working with small businesses, whereas Alloy, like, kind of started out working with larger businesses. Right, right. right. It was was definitely Alloy just had a lot more of the operational stuff that Delia's had never figured Mm -hmm. out. And to be fair, Delia's had more of the aesthetic reach, especially in the beginning, but even, yeah, even and, now, I'm like, no, Delius. <laughs> yeah, for sure, right? Like, for sure, Delius. Delius is like, like, no one's sitting around like, oh, oh Alloy. Alloy. Except Alloy. For, like, so iconic. Except for like us. <laughs> right, right. But even still, if you were like, you can have Alloy or Delius, I would Delius pick Delius every, every single, single time. time yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Alloy, like, just yeah. Like, had like a lot of other like junk, I feel like. It, was, it wasn't as yeah. clean. Uh, the experience. It got weird over time. And like it wasn't – there was no brand to be had from Alloy. Like they sold brands and you'd be like, great, I'm coming here to buy these brands. Mm -hmm. But you weren't like Alloy is the brand. Whereas with Delia's, like Delia's was the brand. Yeah, and I remember like even like their models were consistent. It was like always the same, like 12 people. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So – Alloy had conquered the operational size uh, side of the business, which is just as important. But Delia's had conquered the brand side of it. And so it made sense for them to join forces, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't really a join forces. They were bought. But, like, it makes sense that the whole package would be right. there. And thanks to all of Alloy's, like, really smart decisions, Alloy's uh, distribution, like circulation list was 60 million addresses, whereas Delia's at its peak had just cracked 35 million. So Alloy just had bigger reach. I also, and I might be remembering this wrong. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Didn't Alloy have guy's clothing as well? Like in the back half of it or something? I was thinking that. I think they did a little bit. It was just a little bit. Like a cut, like maybe like four pages out of, I don't know, like 30 or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was like it was. It felt less teenage. Well, girl and it wasn't like it wasn't like pushing it like um, Droog <laughs> was doing. It was more like know. you know, like you're gonna shop at this catalog, and your mom and is gonna and dad are gonna look at it and be like, okay, we well, can pick out a couple things for back to school. And like while we're at it, since we're already filling out the form or we're already calling the number, we might as well like right. get these things for your brother, you know, kind of thing. Totally, totally. So it's pretty smart. Mm-hmm. So 
they bought Delius for a mere $50 million, which is like so tiny for the size of the business at that point. And I think every analyst out there was like this, they're going to like dominate the world, right? Because <laughs> this was like a mega company. Because at that point, their mailing list was 30 to 40% of all U.S. consumers who were between 12 and 18 years That's old. absolutely insane. And the market is not yet saturated either. Right, right. So here's the thing. It didn't work. I know you're shocked to hear that, <laughs> right? Uh, for one, despite the fact that Delia's was just bleeding money on stores, they just kept opening more stores anyway. Okay. That was problematic enough. You know, then we've got – we have to remember that the the group – the age group of 12 to 18 years old is constantly shifting its allegiances, its interests, its trends, right? right? And it also just happens fast and then you're done. It happens really fast. And speaking of fast, this is when fast fashion is beginning. So we've got H&M and Zara and Forever 21 starting to pop up. They're small. They're not like what well, now we're like, oh, those are like the old school fast fashion brands, but they're just starting yes, then. It's like how vintage. <laughs> The product, right, totally. <laughs> Their product was incredibly similar to Delia's, but it was half the price. At Alloy, it so, was, you're saying? Uh, oh, at H&M, H&M and Zara oh, and Forever oh, 21, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was just like half the mm-hmm. price. I mean, I remember Forever 21. You would go in there with 50 bucks and leave with a huge bag oh, of yeah. clothes. And it was like, how does this happen? <laughs> yes. You know? And- Once again, another fashion moment you cannot believe. Going to like the Manhattan uh, Forever 21. <laughs> yeah, totally, like totally. A whole new wardrobe, a whole new me. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. And so this is just like the early stages of that, right? Yeah. It's even then we get to like 2012 or something, and all suddenly all the Forever 21s are like three stories. Mm-hmm. It's like crazy, but this is like the early days of it. Also, like you know, by this time period, Delia's and Alloy, like their their customer, their core customer was this like alt girl, mm-hmm. right? It was like alt girl aesthetic. Yeah. Here's the problem. And the one of these, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Pack Sun and Hot Topic are now also moving into malls. And they also are selling to the alt girl in every mall in America. Like Hot Topic and Pack Sun are opening stores like they're going out of style, mm-hmm. right? And they're being more successful about it. So now it's like a lot of the Delia's product offering is just like getting more and more watered down. It's graphic tees. It's low-rise jeans. It's not directional or aspirational in the way that it was in the 90s. And you can go buy low-rise jeans and graphic tees everywhere. Mm -hmm. And suddenly these places like H&M and Forever 21 and Wet Seal and, you know, Contempo Casual, like, they're cooler. Mm -hmm. They're they're trendier. And they're the same price. They're cheaper. So why are you – shopping from Delia's and so right and they're also the, speedier so they're working fast like the it's everything totally. is moving faster and it sounds like Delia's is just like kind of like trying to stick to their old model when you just it's not appropriate you know it's not going to work anymore right right and so like Delia's is starting to feel like a place not for teenagers but for tweens right and so they're just like they're losing customers yeah so they're like limited to now yeah well, they're just bleeding money. Mm-hmm. Sales are dropping. Their inventory is rising. I've worked at places like this. It's a really bad place yes, to be. Yes, that's what happened at the end of Scream, <laughs> which keeps coming Yeah, up. totally. Like, I mean, this is what happened at Nasty Gal, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. So they decide to do something that I have seen play out so many times in my adult life, which is they were like, we're going to bring in a new fancy 
CEO. Mm -hmm. And so they bring in a woman named Tracy Gardner, who previously had worked at J.Crew, where she had transformed J.Crew from like the preppy J.Crew that we know of the 80s and 90s into like a pretty solid fashion brand. Now, of course, all that goodwill is gone now too. Mm -hmm. But at this point, like it's 2013 and you know who is like a diehard fan of J. Crew, Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. It's that era. And yeah. it, like, so Tracy Gardner was a big part of that, of making like, making J. Crew a brand that was cool and stylish. Yes. Now that is all gone. Um, a big part of that is actually a guy who was my boss at what? became the CEO of J. Crew and drove that business into the oh. ground. This guy when I worked with him, was an asshole. He threw a rolling rack of scarves at me in a meeting once. Oh, yes. I've heard this story. <laughs> yes. He would, like, love to humiliate and scream at people. Him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But he, like, drove them into the ground and got them really discount-focused. And, like, like J. Crew has never rebounded from that, right? Mm. But they bring in Tracy Gardner in 2013 to Delia's because she has, like, made – J. Crew relevant again, you know, for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and she brings in all these executives that she knows from J. Crew and Co- Coach. And she's like, we're gonna re, we're gonna redo this whole thing. Mm-hmm. The first thing she does is sell off Alloy because she's like, Alloy is not relevant anymore. So even though Alloy bought Delia's and it's now this new mega corporation, now we're selling off Alloy. Wow. <laughs> it's like so weird. Anyway, yeah. This is how this goes, right? She thought, oh man, I like. I, oh, this is such a bad idea. I've worked so many places where like, <laughs> it's like, we're going to do this. She said, listen, why don't we make Delia's a brand for wealthier teenage girls? We'll bring in more expensive brands. We'll make it more aspirational. And we're really going to target this wealthier customer. Right. Which was the same thing that was happening at, um, Oh, what's it called? The mall store with the plaid and the boys with no shirts. Oh, um, Abercrombie. Abercrombie. Yeah. 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 So they were trying to like buy into that exclusionary oh. you know, marketing strategy. I mean, this is exactly what happened at Nasty Gal. Basically, they brought in a new CEO who came from Lululemon and other places like that. And she said, we're going to make Nasty Gal the Barneys for millennials. And previously, we were selling, you know, like, they were expensive for what they were, but it was, like, pretty affordable fast fashion that we just made look cool. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly, we're going from selling $50 dresses to selling $200 dresses, except we're not selling them because no one's buying them. Mm. And that inventory hole was what I had to start digging us out of when I joined the team, and it's what I continued to do until we went out of business. Womp, Yes. Oh, gosh. The stress. Because if you're a millennial with a lot of money – you're going to go shop at Barney's. Fine. RIP Barney's as well. Yeah. But like, you know, like you're not going to be like, oh, I'm going to start shopping at Nasty Gal. It just didn't make any sense. And it was very similar it doesn't, with it doesn't. I don't even know how you'd even like get that customer over to you because like you're already established as this like, you know, fast fashion brand. I just, I don't know. I don't see it. Like I, I see it happening every once in a while. Like I'll see like a, like a web, like a, you know, some brand, they'll have like some special collection, like for, like Madewell, for example, they'll do like mm-hmm. these special collections and it'll be like a pair of pants for $300. And I'm just yeah. like, that's weird. It's just like, no, I'm not doing that. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, 
so it's it, it always fails. And yeah. when I think about like at Nasty Gal, for example, if we were trying to say we were going to be Barneys for millennials, the reality is that millennials who wanted to buy like luxury brands or had that kind of money to sell are buying, were buying luxury real luxury brands. brands. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, they're not going to come to us for it. And I would assume that if at Delia's, you're like, we're going to start aiming for those like teenage girls who wear like real designer brands. They're not going to come and buy it from Delia's either. No, it's usually the opposite. It's like we start as a luxury brand and we like end as like a fashion bathroom. We water ourselves down. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And so as this often uh, plays out, uh, Delia's declared bankruptcy a year later. And like looking at this, like again, I haven't like looked at a lot of these notes or thought about them since the first time I did this episode about Delia's. I cannot believe how much this mirrors what happened at Nasty Gal because <laughs> a year after rolling out this, we're like going to be the Barneys for Millennials thing. Guess what? We went bankrupt too. Yeah. And I just think like it. it if you want to burn through a lot of money really fast and lose all your customers, this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also uh, it's like half, it's like too much too fast. Like who's yeah. to say that you couldn't like slowly work your way up to that? I don't know. I don't have any data to say yes or no. But, you know, if you're going to do it, that seems like a better way to do it. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, totally, totally. And so like Delia's went bankrupt in 2015. A company bought the brand for what remained of the intellectual property, I guess, for two and a half million dollars. Mm. Uh tried to reopen online. I remember this. I remember this. Me too. Me too. I remember one day being like, hmm, wonder what's going on with that. I haven't heard from them in many years. And like going on and seeing the sad website and it was like, we're making it work. We're making it happen. Yeah. And then that was it. I can't imagine trying to do this in 2015. I mean, like what, are you ready to go head to head with forever 21 right and also like this like that's a different you don't have the the sentimentality on your side you know it's not like they're targeting like us you know right right (laughs) they're like trying to do it again the same thing and it's just a different different world now it just doesn't work that way Mm. so then Dolls Kill had like started, I want to say since about, let's say, it was, it was like 2018, 19. Yeah, yeah. They started licensing the Delia's brand name. They still do it. They even license some of the designs. Um, and when you look at a lot of the product, you're like, oh, wow, that does really take me back. But I have to tell you, the quality is so egregious. Yes, it's definitely like, like designer imposter Delia's. Oh, because real Delia's was high quality. Yeah. The, the Dolls Kill stuff, I the first drop they did, uh, Dylan and I ordered some things and all of it got returned. It was so bad. We There was a jacket that the zipper didn't even function on it. Mm. Like not even one time. It was just horrible. Yeah. Like fast fashion at its worst. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it now. The Delia's line <laughs> on Dolls Kill. Yeah. Uh, so the yeah. beauty of this is like finally you can wear Delia's because it goes up to 3X, but it still only goes up to 3X. And also it's all made of polyurethane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so Alloy is still around, but in a very uh, strange new format where it is a website that specializes in clothing for tall women. What? Yeah. And this Alloy is the same. Like, it's the same when, thing. It's the same people or the same. When I, yeah. Th- 
loosely, okay. let's just say. Because remember, Delia sold off Alloy back in like what, 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's definitely been bopping around. Wow. So it's technically not the same people, I guess, because it's probably been through like five owners since then. Yeah. But yeah, this is like the latest incarnation of Alloy is like clothing for tall women. And Alloy is just web-based. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I'm looking at it and it's just a white background, black, plain lettering. And it says Alloy Apparel. And it's yep. a lot of tall women. Tall people. Yep. Excuse me. Tall people. Yeah. It, interesting. It does not have any of the original feel. It's just basics. <laughs> no, Maybe like no. a plaid pant, like a bold plaid pant thrown in, a leopard print maybe. There's a lot of pants, which as a I'm six feet tall as a tall person. Like, I appreciate this. <laughs> I know. Maybe you should switch shopping it's from like, Alloy. It's like tall pants are like their main thing. Totally, totally. Wow. It's like they're, which but, I get it. It's like a niche. Yes, do you it's absolutely pick a niche, niche and do it well. And do yeah. it well, but it only goes up to XXL, which in oh. Dolly Parton's America 2022, like why aren't you catering to plus size people? Because 67% of us, the you know, American women or whatever. I know. Are, I mean, don't get me started. Yeah. I'm like, wow, people are, so, these, these companies are so stupid. Why don't you want all my fat money? Like take it. I will give it to I know, you. <laughs> I know. Especially if you're going to focus on, like, your niche is tall women, go for it. Yeah. Dress all the tall really women. Go for it. You will, like, earn their loyalty forever. forever. And they'll be loyal. Yeah, forever. I know. I yeah. know. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. So that's where Alloy is now. We know that Delia's is at Doll's Kill. And it's it's definitely the end of all of those those brands. You know, they're, like, you're on. And I mean, even looking at the Alloy website and seeing what it is now, my guess is like when they sold off Alloy, what they really sold off was the intellectual property. Right. So the name, the mailing list, mm-hmm. uh, possibly some aesthetic stuff. When Nasty Gal went under and it was bought by Boohoo, uh, it was it was the craziest thing. I mean, like Boohoo basically they they bought the intellectual property of Nasty Gal, so they bought uh, the website. They bought the mailing list, the email list at this point, right? Um, and definitely like a lot of like graphics, the Instagram account, all that stuff, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't buy any of the inventory. And so what happened was there was one night where at midnight, the Nasty Gal website turned off mm-hmm. because they had been like having a fire sale for like a month selling off all the inventory. I remember that, Cause, yeah. Because Boohoo was like, we don't want your inventory. Please just, we don't want that. Cut that out of the deal. Mm-hmm. So the... The website turned off and it turned back on a minute later and it was like Bizarro Nasty Gal where it looked almost exactly the same but just slightly different because you know, it was like a new website that was hosted by Boohoo. Right. But so the, was it like a – correct me if I'm wrong. Was it just Boohoo? Was yeah. it just Boohoo came up? Or was yeah. it like some old – some like weird in between like <laughs> – in no, you would it would it looked like Nasty Gal. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was rolled out so strangely. Like you can still go to nastygal.com and the website looks almost identical to how it did in what 2015 and 2016, the end last years of Nasty Gal. Like mm-hmm. it's the same font and logo and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it turned back on, all the clothes were like a quarter of the price that they'd been before, but they looked otherwise very similar. Hmm. And like there was no email that went out to customers, no announcement that was like, hey, Nasty Gal is now under new ownership or 
anything like that. Mm -hmm. And the old Nasty Gal forgot to ship out a ton of orders to customers. And so people were freaking out. No one had access to their orders or tracking because the Boohoo people were like, well, we're not, you know, we're the new Nasty Gal. We can't help you. And it was like a nightmare Mm. for all those customers and probably for the people who do customer service for Boohoo. Right. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I didn't, I was never really a customer, but, um, I remember looking like, just like following along because of the, um, the, the, the short lived TV series, (laughs) girl boss. Yeah. Who could forget? (laughs) Who could forget? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times when I tell people I worked at Nasty Gal and they don't know me very well, they're like, oh my God, I was obsessed with that show. And I'm like, (laughs) I've never watched the show because the, sh- the job gave me PTSD and then oh it's like really gosh. awkward. Yes. So now I just say like, yeah, the show is really good because I don't <laughs> want people to feel bad. Um, but I've never seen it. My friend Kim and I are like, we will die without seeing that right. show. Yeah, you should. Yeah. No, I think that's good. That's a good boundary that you've set for yourself. <laughs> it's a healthy boundary. But anyway, I mean, it's like interesting to me having lived through a very similar scenario to what Delia's went through. To now look at Delia as this brand that I was obsessed with as a kid. I would absolutely watch a Netflix series about Delia's. Someone should make it. Oh, why um, hasn't anybody made it? I know. Like, I want to watch we that. We should make it. <laughs> we should make it. We're, we're totally good at making shows, right? Um, what can go wrong? <laughs> we'll just learn on the fly like we do with many things. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. We'll be fine. We'll yeah, be fine. Yeah, we're yeah. good at a lot of stuff. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the end of Delia's. But I will say Delia's, like, set the tone for so many things that we take for granted in this century. Like, uh, you know, Delia's walked so Glossier could fly. Like, that kind of thing. Like, these brands Mm -hmm. that – I mean, now Glossier has also peaked and is on, like, in a weird place, too. Yes. Um, To to be nice. Um, (laughs) And, you know, we're going to see a million other brands like that. Like, this is just the life cycle of it. And it's really hard – I'm thinking of all the catalogs and brands we've talked about in this episode. It seems like Lillian Vernon is the most successful one. Way to go, Lil. You did it. Lil, you did it. You did. Oh, and Hammacker Schlemmer. Hammacker Schlemmer, uh, which <laughs> says right on the cover, guaranteeing the best, the only, and the unexpected for 174 years. Wow. America's longest running catalog. It says it right on the cover. There you go. Mm -hmm. There you go. So that's in the game of catalogs. That's who came out on top. (laughs) And we, and if we think about it, they, they didn't try to do too much too fast. Mm -hmm. They figured out what they were good at and they stuck with it. I mean, you know. Kudos to them. It's like a life lesson for all of us, really. It kind of is a life lesson to just be yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I want, I want like an embroidered wall hanging that says Hammaker Schlemmer. Just be yourself. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because it's, anyway, I mean, this, such is the secret in life and in business, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, Thank you so much, Jess. This was so fun. This could be such a mega episode. I I just (laughs) loved it. (laughs) Yeah, it was so fun. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jess. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. 
Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. 
Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Thank you again to Jess for spending many hours talking about catalogs with me. It was such a delight that we are already working on another episode together, which I'm planning to be the last episode of 2022. It'll be about toy trends and how they connect to advertising, cartoons, and their uncomfortable relationship with the psyches of children. It's really interesting. We went down a deep rabbit hole planning for this one. In the meantime, you can find Jess on Instagram as at Jess in Space, that's with one S, and also on TikTok where she creates all kinds of amazing videos as Jess in Space. Yes, still one S. And of course, all that will be in the show notes. I thought I would end this episode with a story of one more catalog. And this part of the episode, this coverage of this specific catalog is dedicated to Miss Susan Massey. We're going to talk about the story of Swiss Colony. Swiss Colony is, according to the Swiss Colony website, America's number one food gifts catalog. And you know what? I do not question that. I believe that. I have so many memories of this catalog arriving at our house around October every year, filled with cheese baskets, cookies, festive torts, tins of sugar-free candy, even bigger tins of popcorn, all very festive, right? Petite Ford decorated with little snowmen. I picture them. I mean, I've had them so many times. Swiss Colony had all of the food you were supposed to gift to your loved ones, specifically around the holidays. I love a food gift to this day. And who is really ever truly angry about some festive troubles? The worst thing that happens is you say, oh, I don't eat chocolate or this doesn't fit into my diet and you pass it on to someone else, right? Because it's still a great re-gift. My mom and grandma ordered religiously from Swiss Colony. Like it is such a part of my childhood memories. And They would even send me Swiss Colony as an adult, specifically uh, those Petit Fours with the uh, snowman. Oh, so good. 
To me, as a child, Swiss Colony was the most sophisticated catalog for the true gourmands, for people who probably owned yachts and spent the holidays skiing in the Alps. It was for people who had been to Europe. Because wasn't Swiss Colony, you know, Swiss and therefore European and therefore fancy? Well, (laughs) maybe not. It turns out that Swiss Colony began in 1926 in neither Geneva nor Zurich nor even a bucolic Alpen village, but instead in Monroe, Wisconsin, in the United States of America. Apparently, not surprising to me, Monroe had both a strong concentration of Swiss immigrants and a history of making a lot of cheese. Ray Kubley was a senior at the University of Wisconsin that year. Once again, it was 1926. And one of his school projects was considering the pros and cons of creating a business selling Wisconsin cheese via mail order. Now, it was no coincidence that Ray had cheese on his mind because, according to the Swiss Colony website, Ray's hometown was the, quote, unofficial cheese capital of the biggest cheese-producing state in the nation. Cheese was pretty much in his blood, which is a gross mental picture for sure, but, you know, he's from cheese country. Well, after he graduated, Ray just could not stop thinking about this cheese mail-order business, so he decided to go for it. And per Swiss colony legend... Quote, he mailed out handbills, which he himself designed and stamped, that advertised cuts of Wisconsin-made bulk cheeses for the upcoming holidays. As orders came in, he cut the huge wheels of cheese into pieces by hand, then wrapped and shipped them. In his first year of business, he sold all 50 packages of cheese that he had prepared. Okay, well, by 1941, 15 years later... Swiss Colony had 100 seasonal employees because, you know, the focus was on holiday food gifting. And customers included Eleanor Roosevelt, Jimmy Stewart, Ginger Rogers, Ronald Reagan, and many other celebrities who loved giving cheese as a gift. Just a few years later, the business had grown so much that the railroad had to send an extra boxcar to Monroe every week in December just to transport all of those holiday cheese orders. A boxcar is huge. I can't even imagine how many pounds of cheese are in a boxcar, to be honest. It's much, much cheese. Over time, Swiss Colony added sausage, bakery products, and candies to its product offering. These included fruitcake, tort, and of course, those petite fours. They were making so many seasonally, adorably, festively decorated baked goods that according to their website, the Swiss Colony has the largest hand-decorating bakery in America. This business is growing a lot. We've got celebrities. We've got baked goods. We've got hand-decorating. From 1926 to 1961, as Swiss Colony grew and grew, Ray Kubley was just doing it. Are you ready for this? As a side hustle. In fact, this entire time, he held on to his day job at Borden, which was a dairy company, still is around, where he worked his way up to vice president. So for 35 years, he worked two jobs. Wild to me. 
Like a lot of catalogs, Swiss Colony tried to make the move to retail stores in the 60s and 70s, operating more than 225 locations. But in the 1980s, the company decided to move away from that plan, closing these stores due to, you know, an economic downturn and the high rents in malls. And honestly, I think the Swiss Colony made a really smart decision there because I do wonder if they had tried to force the issue, so to speak, and keep those stores open if the company would still be around now. As of today, Swiss Colony is still family-owned, but now it is called Colony Brands, Inc. It employs more than 4,500 people, with about half of them being seasonal employees strictly for the rush of holiday food gifts. In 2008, Colony Brands purchased the assets of a bankrupt catalog retailer called Direct Marketing Service, what a scintillating name, And by purchasing this, they acquired more catalog brands, including Montgomery Ward, Charles Keith, which was a home decor brand that seems to be defunct, and Home Visions also seems to be RIP. And most importantly, as we've learned in this episode, they acquired all of those addresses for potential customers. That's the name of the game in the catalog business. Gotta have those mailing addresses. Colony Brands also acquired many other catalogs over the years, including Wisconsin Cheeseman, which I didn't look up, but my I speculate is a cheese catalog. Midnight Velvet, which sounds like a great album name, um, actually sells clothing and home goods. Ginny's, another home goods and gifts catalog. Seventh Avenue, Another, yet another clothing and home decor gift catalog. They consider this their their flagship catalog, even bigger than Swiss Colony. And all of these catalogs are known for offering financing on all of their orders. That includes the food from Swiss Colony. It's sort of like layaway, but with interest. There's a payment plan. And I know for certain that, that this is how my family got into shopping from them and why they like shopping from them. Once you buy from one of these catalogs, you start receiving them all, and the financing is pretty hard to resist, I think, for a lot of people. And so, yeah, the company still family-owned, still going strong, kind of unusual in comparison to all the other catalogs we've talked about, right? But here's the twist that you didn't see coming. Colony Brands also maintains a controlling interest in SC Aviation, Inc., The SC is for Swiss Colony. It's a provider of charter aircraft. It all began in 1946 when the company bought a two-passenger single-engine Cessna 140. This was used to transport executives and, when necessary, products and orders. And soon they added a five-seat Cessna to the mix because they were getting so much use out of the other airplane. And over the years, as they added and upgraded their planes, they realized that this fleet was another source of revenue for the company. As other businesses were willing to pay for use of these planes to transport their own executives and products and orders. SC Aviation offers charter flights all over the Midwest via private jet. You can go to their website right now and look into booking one. Kind of a crazy add-on to all of this cheese and baked goods, right? And those snowman petit fours. Uh, anyway, that's all I have for this catalog of Palooza, but perhaps we'll revisit this more next year because I asked you all this week on Instagram to tell me some of your favorite catalogs from childhood, and you gave me quite a long list that I will be thinking about, so perhaps we'll do another part next year. 
But I have to go make dinner now. It's going to be lasagna with zucchini instead of noodles. It's very dreary here in Austin today. It's been dreary in Austin for quite a while. And I feel like some nice lasagna will make us all feel a lot better while we watch White Lotus. So I'm going to call this the end of this episode and say thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and maybe even if you're feeling extra this week, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell your friends because that's that's how real change happens, right? Getting more and more people involved. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can find out more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast. And thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. I will see you all next week. Bye.